Welcome back to Foves Are the Best People. On the previous episode, we looked at how the young band got together and heard about their first gig at Mount Eliza Football Club in July 1988. After the initial glow of their debut, like all bands, they were at sea for the first few months, trying to secure gigs in the city and rehearsing at full steam. They pounded the pavement, hawked their two demos to publicans, dropped off cassettes blindly at record labels. They got a boost through making friends with Dave O'Neill and Captain Coco, who took the boys under their wing, but more importantly secured a booking at the famous Punters Club sometime in early 1989. They found their feet as they got more and more gigs under their belt. We pick up the story now in the new year, 1989. You know a band is starting to develop an esprit de corps when nicknames for each other start to fossilise and foundation myths start to take on shape. Uh, what was the origin of Jack's G-Man nickname? Do you know that? Coxie said it's in the folds of history. You can't remember where G-Man came from. Yeah, where did that come from? We, we were calling him um, Greg. Yeah, we were calling him Greg for a while because <laughs> that was just like a. It he just looked seemed, like a Greg. He looked like a Greg. He acted like a Greg. So he was started. He was Greg Dyer. But I think that I think that's where the G Man came from. Yeah, I think Greg, you're right. Yeah, Greg Dyer. Greg Dyer. Um, yeah, and then of course variations on a thing. Greg and well, he was already called Jack. Girls man. Jig. Jig. Um, massive ladies man. He was. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think the Greg, I think the Greg is the origin. These things—it's hard with these sort of names. They they just evolve out of out of something, and it's so long ago. It's just so difficult to remember. Um, girls, man, maybe girls. No, man. it was it was way more obscure and stupid than that. But it, it's and that's why I can't remember because it was just it's just yeah. I, I, I honestly don't know, but. He had a, a number of different sort of names that just evolved out of out of that, or d- just went through different phases. But they're just sort of in, very in sort of in band things, and you know, it, it's often just something really insignificant, and someone latches onto something um, more probably more as a piss take than anything. But but I, I can't remember why 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 we started calling him that. Um, it wasn't anything particularly profound. <laughs> were you called Doctor because of your dad? Was that simply with the nick? Did the nickname predate the foes? No, no. So the nickname came, I think it came from the fact that I had a doctor's bag, um, which was my dad's bag, which I had my leads in. And uh, I, I don't know exactly who start, started calling me the, the doctor, but it was, that's just, that's just the things that people do in bands, isn't it? They come up with, Names for each other, and um, they're generally not their usual name. So yeah, once it sticks, it sticks, and that's that's been it. I'll tell you, this is what how it happened. It's not even a good story though. Like, it was something to do with there was some sort of band review or something, and you got called or somewhere you got called Phil Connard, and then for some reason we started calling you Doc Connard. Because it sort of worked. And then it became Doctor. 
Yeah, that's it's what it rings a bell. Yeah. Who's Dr. Connor? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, said, didn't say, I, I prefaced it by saying it wasn't a good anecdote. <laughs> In keeping with every anecdote we've delivered so far, right? <laughs> We've heard from others about the origin of the bass man's nickname. Here is Jack with his thoughts. How did you get the nickname G-Man? Is it just because of Greg? You look like a Greg? Is that, is that as simple as that? Oh, look, <laughs> uh, it, it evolved from, from many things. Um, it was Jack and then uh, a, a, you know, I went through a phase where a lot of people call me Jacques. And I went from Jacques to Jig. Um, you know, Jiggy Dyer, and then it became Jeeves because we were driving, and I think it might have been it was either Brisbane or it was um, Canberra. I can't remember, but Adam, Adam said something about um, you know, nice, nice driving, Jeevesy, and it's just you know everyone just thought it was absolutely hilarious, and you know, so yeah, whatever. So I went from Jeeves, and then. There was Greg Dyer, who was, I'm pretty sure he was a cricketer, played for Victoria. So it, it just became these sort of G's and J's, just seemed to be this play on G's and J's all the time. And Adam, it was pretty much most of the time, Adam would come out with these things. And then he just come up with Greg, you know, and uh, um, so from Greg Dyer, the cricket, and so, did, and then, you know, come with the Greg came for G, or oh, not, I can't remember. And then it just went from that to G, and then okay. it became G Man. Um, and yeah. <laughs> well, as a chuffer, I guess he's got G's on the mind. So. Yes, yes, yes. New bands gain and shred musical influences fast. For Coxie, Dylan, Pink Floyd were initial touchstones. For Doctor, Devo and Billy Joel. Bands swap tapes with support bands and become exposed to new influences even ones you wouldn't necessarily suspect, or would you? But by the time I guess we were starting the Foes, we were sort of into bands like the Smiths and REM, and um, those two bands really leap out in particular. Sonic Youth very quickly became, and anybody who's into Sonic Youth, it's funny, I don't, probably most people would never really associate the Foes with Sonic Youth, but Not me. you can hear the Foes, Sonic Youth all through the Foes. I think? think? Oh, big time. First yeah, yeah. anyway. Um, just in the way we play guitars. And yeah. things, so they're pro- yeah, so they're probably the, my biggest influence, I'd say. Coxie began listening to Sonic Youth, fiddling around with tunings and approaching the guitar not for chord or melody, but also for sonic effect. Pun intended. Was it harder to drum to Coxie's songs in the beginning that he was turning out than Doctor's? In the early days, I mean. Yeah, I, it, it, definitely, because yeah. um, Coxie just wrote really atypical arrangements so you'd have this bit and then that bit and then that bit and that bit Doctor's been always been more of a straight pop songwriter than Coxie has not that Coxie can't write great pop songs but um, he's he's and, and, and the way he writes them too because Phil will pull out a riff and will sometimes we just jam up riffs with him and then he'll come up with lyrics and extra bits and stuff yeah. later on whereas Andy Coxie will usually present you with a complete song 
and sort of go, there's this bit and there's this bit and everything else sort of thing. So, yeah, two completely different styles. Uh, you thank Captain Coco, Dave O'Neill. You played a lot with them in the played first a, two years? Played a, played a lot with them. That was one of those bands, again, that we that took us under their wing and gave us a lot of support shows. So, yeah, that was that was that period of, like I said, going from the naive handing demo tapes into actually playing some yeah. regular gigs with people there. So, yeah, they were really good for us. Was Dave O'Neill one of the funny ones even back then? Did oh, he, totally. Uh, and yeah. he was so thin then, too. Him and his brother. <laughs> they had a launch we did at the, the venue called The Club in Collingwood that used to be in Smith Street. And it had like this movie, this super 80 sort of movie they put on. It was fucking hilarious. Like they were, he was definitely funny then. His brother was too. And they were both thin. <laughs> the band rehearsed at Coxie's dad's shed, nestled by fertiliser and seedlings packets. Saffron Newey, Doug's sister, recalls hearing the band at some of those shed rehearsals as a teenager big part of my life since I was probably 16 and I remember um, when they used to practice on Coxie's property because he's from Muraduck and his parents have this big big property but with the tiniest little shed <laughs> that the folks would all jam into you know right up against the wall to plight to practice and my best friend Kim had a horse that was adjusted just behind Coxie's property so We'd be there with her stupid horse, but listening to the foves. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have great, great memories of the foves growing up and developing. And How did they get into the city? Were you using your dad's paving van from the start to help out? Um, no. We, most, most of our... Yeah, I sort of. Um, we we might have used the Ute occasionally, but we, we the main one we used in the early days was Phil's dad had this Mitsubishi sort of four wheel drive camper van thing, and that was good because you could get all our gear and us in that, and Coxie would drive us. Yep. So, um, you know, in those days we were playing, you know, played the punters occasionally, play the builders' arms, mm-hmm. um, no, play the builders' arms. Sorry, the Royal Artillery. Royal Artillery. The Art House. The, the Art House, yeah, what it's yeah. called now. We play, and we're still the Royal Artillery when we started playing. We did quite a few shows there. So, yeah, it would have been Phil's dad's van in the early days. Jack was a busy man. Even at this stage, he had a lot on the go. Did you ever put your carpentry skills to use for the band in, I don't know, making a, a cabinet or anything or fitting out the Tarago or anything like that? Well, the Tarago was always hired, so, um, you know, couldn't, oh, yes. couldn't, yeah. couldn't really do that. And, and uh, you know, so we just, you know, we'd get everywhere. Um, by, you know, if, if there's any trips, it, we'd hire stuff. Otherwise, we'd just take our own cars. And Andy had these little Datsun 180B, which fitted fuck all in it. And I usually mm. I either had a, a Land Cruiser or a Troopy or something. And, um, but yeah, um, no, not really. I mean, apart from, you know, making up, you know, pedal boxes and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. It was never really, you know, we'd rehearse at Coxie's uh, place in his dad's nursery shed, um, which was so small. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just utilise, you know, the bench tops that uh, his dad had in there for all his potting and whatnot. 
So, yeah. No, it was sort of, not really. <laughs> you never had a romantic idea to, you know, carve your own bass like the Beatles did or something? Oh, yeah, well, what I did do, what I did do, <laughs> the, the court, early on, I remember it was, it was a, once there was that transition where it's, well, I've got a bass, so I might as well play, play bass. I mean, it, that's what it was like. It was no sort of like, um, you know, you play bass now. I mean, Phil, Phil could actually play guitar. Um, and I had a bass, so I thought, well, we need a bass player, I might as well I'll play, play bass, you know. Um, and I used this court, and it, you imagine it was terrible sound, but it's all we had, you know, we didn't have money for anything fancy. So I remember early on, you know, it was like the pressure was, especially from Adam, you know, pressure was on to, you know, get a decent bass. And um, I think the, God, oh, it was the first one, I think it was an Ibanez, it was some, some, gloss black thing I got again it was a cheap one but it was a real toppy sound and whatnot so what I, and I, I quite got quite fond of my old court so I, I stripped it back and sanded it all back to, to um, bare timber and sort of reshaped it a bit and, and repainted it and varnished it and had a you know, black striker plate on it so I guess that's as close as I got to you know actually you know, carving out my own guitar but it still sounded like crap and it was uh it hit the bin at some point in time. <laughs> and who would have been there to marvel at a bespokely altered bass guitar? Who was there to impress on the scene? Was there a scene? that the early band belonged to? I'm too young. In the late 80s when you started out, mm. I'm assuming there's remnants of sort of punk bands. Was there an indie scene, so to speak? Like, were there any... Yeah, I yeah? think um, the indie scene was... Um, is that who? You, is that how you self-characterised yourself? As like an early Hunters band or a Hoodoo Gurus well, type we, we were, Well, we were certainly fans of Hunters and Hoodoo Gurus, so um, we were sort of happy to be compared to those acts. But... Um, you know, sort of. Then there was sort of this sort of. Uh, there's always been that sort of Melbourne-y, bluesy, authentic musos sort of thing, which was going in. So Chris Wilson was obviously yeah. a part of that. But Barb, Barb Waters and the Rough Diamonds, um, Wild Pumpkins at Midnight. Um, what else? So that was sort of all. There was a sort of a folksy, bluesy yeah, yeah. stuff going on at that, that stage. Things of Stone and Wood. Did you ever play Things with them? Things of Stone or and Wood. Didn't play with no. them. Um, but could quite easily have. Quite, could have. Yeah. Could have. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of those sort of bands around, and then there was in our little cropper bands, there was sort of like Us, Ripe, um, Glory Box, or they later on? Glory Box, definitely. Um, yeah, so a bit of a bit of, bit of a mix, but you know. Many bands and comedians recall their debuts with much clarity. The subsequent ones, unfortunately, become a bit more murky. So too early songs that never make it to tape, but are thrashed to death as live filler grist. Do you have fond memories of playing at the artillery, now known as the Art House? Um, that was a lot of... You had a residency there for a few yes. months. And in- yes, played there quite a lot. I can remember there being... Um- I could just remember we just weren't we weren't very good 
which we weren't very good for many, many years. Uh, here I am doing the five thing, but yeah, again, just looking back at it, to see we weren't. But um, I assume there was a lot of hot turmoil there. Um, cause I, Were there bikies there? No, no, it was a lot of uni. It was quite a quite a uni student sort of place. It didn't really. Oh, yes. Well, when we played there, it was very much a sort of you know indie scene, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. I'm just going off shred. One of the one of the versions. Coxie mentioned some horribly named song called South Pole Expedition Disaster. Yes, yes, yes. That was actually actual memory. That was a good song. Oh, um, really? Yeah, I, um, yeah, but, but yeah. Yeah, I saw that on your notes. I don't, I don't recall. It doesn't surprise me that you know, we would have forgotten how to play it or something. Well, apparently you forgot one bar and then Doctor forgot. <laughs> well, that's just maybe Coxie's being poetic. Yeah, there it, it was some sort of yeah. It, it was a, a. It just went to shit, you know. Um, yeah. I don't remember quitting the band. Four members were dedicated to the group. Jack, however, had to keep many plates up in the air. Coxie went through all the pretty much his calculations, and I was surprised how very few times any of you missed shows. Like you had missed two or something, and Phil missed four, and it was like, wow, that's a pretty good record. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's right. We, um, Especially, I mean, I was the only one in the band that worked. But yes. I, I had my apprenticeship, you know, and, and that sort of started just before, you know, before the band started. So it was pretty much, you know, st- you know, everything was happening at the same time. And of course, at that stage, you got no idea, you know, you, you know whether we're going to go anywhere as a band. And, and I've, I've got a job and yeah. yachting as well. Yacht. Yes, yes. So it was all uh, there was lots of fingers and pies, and, and I, I can I still played footy for a bit longer. Um, until a point where you know, basically, you know, the guy said, you know, you really need to stop playing footy because if you hurt your fingers, um, then we can't yeah. play. So I, you know, gave up the footy. Um, and then as the years went on, you know, obviously um, the yacht racing is that was quite quite um, time consuming because especially at Hobart's there's a good there's two weeks over Christmas and, and uh, Boxing Day and whatnot where um, I'd be committed yacht racing and then to be serious and stuff during the year. So that, that was, just became, you know, as everything seemed to sort of, for me anyway, everything um, seemed to progress at the same time, like, you know, yeah. obviously with work and then, and, and then the yacht racing, you get more more serious. Um, footy got serious, but then, you know, uh, that was the first to go. That was easy. Um and then yacht racing in the band just kept getting serious, you know, more and more, uh, yeah. yeah, better. So gradually, all the other things dropped away, um, but obviously the work didn't. Um, so I was sort of, uh, it was a long way ahead of the other guys and that because they were just on the dole, you know, writing music and um, just you know living the, the, the museo lifestyle. 
Whereas, yeah, you, yeah, you would have probably on that 15, you mentioned 15 minutes are off. You sort of got a bit of an indication there. The two demos had served their purpose. The band were pleased with at least five of their songs and felt the time was ready to record. Doctor found an enticing advertisement for Timbertop Recording Studios in the pages of Duke magazine. The band went into the studio in August 1989. Enter the Fove story now, one Robbie Rowlands, who had just joined Timbertop as an intern a few months before the band entered the studio. So I tracked down a studio in Ringwood called Timbertop and said to them, can I be an assistant engineer here? And they're like, yeah, look, you don't get paid, but yeah, come come on board and you just sort of hang in with the sessions and mop the floor and get the lunches and things like that. So I got into Timbertop and, um, you know, learned from the ground up um, from, you know, pouring coffee to figuring out how to work that equipment by looking over the shoulders of... Um, the engineers and producers that were coming into that place. Um, so that actually r- basically cuts to the chase of how I met the Foves because um, there was an engineer producer there, Doug Saunders, who really was the kind of go-to guy for kind of the heavy metal bands that were coming out of the eastern suburbs. And he used to um, really, you know, have them. He'd just be rolling with them every night Um he was like pizza and coke sort of kind of engineer guy in his trackies and he was just like ploughing through these heavy metal bands and he didn't need an assistant so and he actually didn't want an assistant so I never really got to work on many of those sessions but I would see it after it. You know, I'd lock in in the morning and he was finishing up at like nine in the morning or something, done an all-nighter and so I'd see him then and... You know, like just sort of, and then I get to see the setup of what he was doing. Um, he always had the drums in the kitchen and things like that. Um, but he, yeah, I, I'd be really interested from the band's perspective of how he got involved with the Foes because it kind of wasn't his genre at the time. House producer Doug Saunders was assigned to the Foves after Doctor rang up the studio. By all accounts, it was a great mix of people talented professionals and people still learning their craft like Robbie in a positive environment. But, you know, look, it was a kind of, it was a perfect trade, first trade situation of learning from the, um, from on the tools, you know, and making mistakes, um, you know, clarifying how to do things through kind of fucking up, really. And, you know, I still remember recording some uh, acoustic guitars and Doug came in and just listened to them and went, fuck, Robbie, they are so shit. And <laughs> I I went away and thought, fuck, I need to learn how to record acoustic guitars. So I found these really exceptional flamenco guitarists, nylon, string and steel, and said to him, hey, guys, can I offer you some free recording time? Um, I just need to learn how to record acoustic guitars. So they came into the studio multiple times and we really ploughed through just experimenting with recording guitars. And then when I showed um, Doug the uh, recordings, he just was so, so impressed. Um, 
So that was good. It was good to imp- impress Doug. Um, and look, sadly, he's passed too. I'm, look, I'm pretty sure of that. I've tried my best to track that um, historically, but um, I th- I'm pretty sure he's passed also. Tism and other bands had previously recorded at Timbertop Studios. Here's Damien Cow with his reminiscences of the outer suburban studio. Do you remember Tim, uh, Timbertop Studios in Ringwood? I do, You I recorded do. Like Apathy there or something? We recorded um, our first EP there, right. uh, Form and Meaning Reach Ultimate Communion. They recorded their first EP there too. Did they? It was run by a religious guy, I gather. Really? Yeah. So we uh, did this backward message going, uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen or something like that. <laughs> I can't quite remember it, but... Um, was it a prestigious place? Um, you know, Ringwood is... Uh, industrial, yeah. Like Springvale, where I grew up, and um, so it was, it was pretty unexciting for a young guy in a band going into his first proper studio. You know, I was expecting to have attractive girls buy me dinner, you know, and, uh, well, yeah, it was Hungry Jacks for me. So, so yeah, we, ne- we never went back to Timbertop, and, of course, we did actually gravitate to the studio where the attractive girl buys you dinner so I made it in the end but yeah I, I don't know whether it was a good studio or not I, I guess it was okay the record sounded okay but um, yeah we were uh, far too um, you know sort of superficial and um, and uh, starstruck to ever record in Ringwood again you know Jack remembers the experience very fondly despite a little transport problem I remember that because uh, yeah, that was uh, I was on vinyl. Was uh, that was the um, um, our first ever pressing? I remember I had my HK panel van. I remember getting there. It was pouring in the rain, and the it was thrown on the tree, and it broke off. <laughs> so oh. I had no gears, and yeah, coming up after a recording session beforehand. Um, I remember it being brick walls and I'm pretty sure there was like a pinball machine or something there um, <laughs> Was Coxie really nervous or well, I suppose you're all a bit tim- a bit nervous or? Yeah, oh yeah I think because it was very new to us I mean this is a first I mean uh, obviously Adam again had a lot more experience yeah. um, but our you know our only recording adventures were were just me and Andy with the four track you know um, and we do a lot a lot of that back at Andy's house as the years went on. But, yeah, I remember it being our first, you know, obviously our first proper recording. So we were quite nervous because it was expensive. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to make sure we, we maximised it all. Um, you know, we sort of didn't know all the protocols and, and how things are laid down and, and the orders of and all that sort of stuff. So it was, you know, obviously highly educational experience. But, yeah, no, I, I remember it fondly. I remember it being very stressful. Doctor organised all that, and he's yep. not known for his organisational capacity. I put that together. Yeah, oh, so yeah. it was a deal, $1,700. We got studio time at Timbertop in Ringwood. Robbie Rollins in that. Doug yeah, Rob- Saunders. Yeah, Doug Saunders with Robbie Rollins as his assistant. Well, I'm Facebook friends with Robbie now. Okay, yeah. yeah. J-U-K-E. Yeah, Doug put the whole thing together. It's the last thing he's ever organised. After that, I just wiped my hands and said, job done, guys. It's over to you. Talk about a different time, my that God. Is. 
Like, yeah, didn't get on to Mr. Sanders, but that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what he died of. Robbie was quite moved. He said I had great memories of him, and he, yeah. he was my early mentor before I went yeah, to Paradise. Yeah, yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't leading an overly healthy lifestyle when... Was he smoking? And he, was, he was smoking. Big chain smoking. Smoking a lot of cigarettes. Yeah. Eating unhealthy takeaway, takeout, takeaway yeah. food and cigarettes. It was very much the studio lifestyle for Doug, Doug Saunders. Classic studio rat, wasn't bad, it? Bad hours, inconsistent sleeping hours. So this mood has passed. Was it totally self-financed or...? My old man chipped in. Yeah, I don't know how much we chipped in. Yeah, we chipped in some. Yeah, definitely. it didn't cost yeah. that much. $1,700. I'm sure it was $1,700 for the recording and pressing of 500 copies. Yeah, wow. That's my memory. But Because um, I've got the receipt in my sort of... And we still got quite a few copies of that. And did you sell all 500? They're all gone. We, we saw the second pressing that went too. There's wow. no more left, yeah. So how many is that all up? A thousand. A thousand. <laughs> yeah. Said very proud. We're going to drain those numbers now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A thousand, that's not bad. Yeah. Producer Doug Saunders was a traditionalist. Multi-tracks were used instrument by instrument. Speaking of instruments... What gear did the band use around mid-1989? And what did they use on their first EP? What bass jack used has been lost to the folds of time? Coxie had a run of bad luck with guitars. The front man initially had a Seymour, a cheap Strat-style knockoff, until he left it backstage at the Riverside Tavern, their first city gig, and never saw it again. Dr. had a Lagrange that both he and Coxie used until Coxie knocked it over on stage and the head snapped off. His next guitar was probably his Japanese Fender Jazzmaster. But memory is hazy whether this was in time for this mood has passed. Aficionados, please write in. What was Timberlake as a studio? Was it was it medium sized and have Persian rugs on the car on the walls? It was quite an amazing studio for its time. Memorably, it had a, a couch, uh, like set-in booth couch along the whole back wall. You could seriously fit probably, I don't know, 10 musicians comfortably sitting on that back couch, which was up raised up high, and then you would peer down and you had like all the equipment rack in front of you, like a, a table and the equipment rack was in front of that, and then you had a... What was at the time was an imitation SSL, a Tascam, which was the very, very poor cousin of an SSL. Um, sonically, it was uh, pretty dubious. Uh, they had a, a couple of Neve modules in a rack, which was like the go-to for everything that you were overdubbing, um, but it was really basic. Um, but they had a really beautiful tape machine. It had an Atari um, two-inch tape machine, which... Um, yeah, it was a really nice tape machine. So, look, that probably helped sort a few things out. But um, And some nice microphones. Um, and the studios, I remember, the recording spaces were, you know, it was pretty cool. Like, you could set a full band up. And like I said, the live room became the um, kitchen area out, out the back if you wanted a real live sort of sound. Um, but, you know, look... Uh, it was kind of incredible for me when I was first starting to just 
have full run of that place and and just really dive in and experiment with what things could sound like and um you know turn microphones on and just play with the idea of of space and um and recording that and hearing what the outcomes are so yeah the folks came in to record their first ep in august 89 how long had you been at Timbertop by that stage roughly just a matter of months or a few full yeah months? look that a bit blurry on that and look i and i don't know how i think they were finishing that record off when i was there and I'd, I'd heard about them and i think it was a bit of a convoluted journey for them i think and I, I do remember andy was having trouble with getting the rec- records pressed or something yeah. and it was taking time and and I joined in on that conversation of helping with the anxiety that no I couldn't help but I was just kind of you know somehow jumped in on that conversation and and saw the tail end of that um so I don't I remember hearing it but I don't I wasn't involved at all in that record um but I remember hearing it now I don't know how that joins me into the picture but maybe they because we met and I was from that environment we kind of kept up a conversation about um, what they're doing and where they're going Um, because I took off from there to work at Paradise Studios in Sydney When we interviewed Robbie he says he doesn't remember being there for the first EP Okay (laughs) Left a big impression on him (laughs) Maybe, maybe Doug was doing it, yeah? Um, no, Doug was doing it, but I thought Robbie was there for the first one, wasn't he? He's definitely there for yeah. the first one. Damn right he was, yeah. Um, yeah. So he was there, definitely, yeah. Robbie was? For the first EP, he was the assistant. Right, Yeah. So you had 25 hours recording, but 16 hours for mixing. Is that the usual ratio, Ted, like back in those days? Sorry, what were those numbers again? 25 recording, production, and then 16 hours for your two grand or whatever. 16 hours mixing. Shit, how did you find that out, John? It's, on the... it's either on what you've written or on the back of the record or something. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. Wow. That's quite a lot of time. Yeah, that, that sounds about right for the days of uh, reel to reel. Yeah, yeah well, I suppose we did five songs, didn't we? Yeah. Two hours each or three hours each. I was thinking if you want to be uncharitable, it's quite a lot of time to polish a turd. You know, 25 hours and 16 to mix it or perfect it. Yeah. Well, mixing was a lot more complicated then. You know, you had big analog boards and it wasn't a lot of of rewind time, that sort of thing. There was no computery shit. No, no, no recall of any of the mixes. Live sound mixer Peter Caritas recalls also being present for at least one session at Timbertop. Then I was at the at the recording of um, This Mood Has Passed at uh, Timbertop in Ringwood. Nice. So so that, that very first uh, very first EP, which um, which you know ironically was was not not far from where I lived because I was living in North Ringwood, so it was actually it was great because it was nice and close. Um, and to your, your question earlier on about going to you know rehearsals and stuff you know I didn't really go to many rehearsals sim- simply because you know um, from where I was living to, to where they would rehearse was like 65 k's away and 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 at the time I didn't have a car so um you know that that was kind of hard so so yeah Timbertop um and um that AP did really well actually it started it got rotation on Triple J and and um it, it did quite 
um, it did quite well, I think, for a, you know something that was recorded over a, you know um, through through the middle of the night. I think the deal was it was kind of during the off time of the studio, so it was you know recording all through the night, and I think it was done maybe only over two nights, done over a weekend. Were they pretty nervous? Um, look, it's it's. I think so. I think so. Look, it was hard to tell because it was, you know, it was it was sort of fresh for me as well. So, um, so they seemed to, um, you know, they seemed to do all right at it. Really, I think you know the the result was kind of quite good. Got some airplay. So, so I think in the in the scheme of things and and where they were in their career, it was um, a pretty good outcome. Really, unfortunately, recently Doug Saunders, the producer, he passed away. Yeah, that's very sad. So we spoke to Robbie, who did their other EPs. Do you remember yeah, Doug that's, that's, at all? Yeah, I, I do remember Doug looking at um, – because I, th- I I think that was when we first met Robbie as well, because I think Robbie was kind of assisting at that recording. He's, yeah, that's what everyone says, but Robbie can't really remember. He goes, I, I don't think I was there. <laughs> he only remembers the other EPs, but maybe yeah. he was in a junior Yeah, position. no, look, I, I reckon that's when we met him, because I, I think there was Doug, and then maybe he, Robbie was assisting. Maybe he wasn't there the whole time. But, look, you know, look Doug, Doug, Doug was fairly – I think fairly experienced. So I think having someone, you know, reasonably experienced lead them through that recording process was um, was quite good. So so you know he was he was in some ways kind of producing as as, as well as just kind of recording for that as well. Did you take so, any uh, photos? Was your Instamatic out? No, I don't think I did then. Actually, um, you failed history, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of those things in hindsight, but um, yeah, no, no, I didn't. Foves logo, you know, the early one before drive. Oh, the early one. So that was um, uh, one of my mum's students. She was a lecturer at Monash in design mm-hmm. and illustration. And um, Matt Davidson. So he's actually an illustrator in The Age now. Does quite a lot of the illustrations in The Age. And um, she said, yeah, he's a really great young student. So he did the logo. He did the artwork for the first EP. He set up the display at Gaslight Records in the window. Um, yeah, yeah. It didn't really last past drive through, did it? I haven't seen it for a while. No, nah, we did. Um, we did drive through with it. We had it on our. We did a single called "Daughter Abroad." Oh yeah. Um, that was after the EP. It was on that. Enter the story, art student Matthew Davidson, who recalls how he came into designing artwork for the first EP. Where did you grow up and and how did you get into the visual arts? What's your um, journey? That's a good question. Uh, I grew up in, in, outside of Ballarat on a little farm and, um, I, I don't know, I've always enjoyed drawing 
and uh, dropped that through school to do science and then picked it up again straight afterwards and kind of never really looked back. Did a graphic design course in in Chisholm uh, in Caulfield uh, uh, in uh, uni when it was a university there in in Caulfield and that's where I met, uh, yes, Regina Newey who was Adam Newey, the drummer of the Fives' mum. She taught me illustration in, uh, in later uni years. Was that part of Monash University then, or is it? No, now? I think it just became it as as I left. Pretty much, they, they amalgamated in the early nineties, I think, and I just just split. Yeah. Now, uh, was Regina Newey one of your mentors there? Did she teach you a number of subjects, or or just the one? one? Just the one, but she was very much a huge influence in those days. Um, her her sort of take on what illustration could be was. Uh, opened my eyes, you know, uh, like there were a lot of people who had much less of a, of a, of a vision of what, it, what the potential for illustration could be. But she really brought it back to um, a very expressive, um, very varied techniques and just opened doors. It was, it was pretty wonderful. It was, it was a great time for me. Do you remember the, the name of the subject or the module that she taught? I think it was just called Illustration, yeah. She was criticised okay. by some more conservative artists a little bit, I think, for, uh, who thought it was just too outrageous and, you know, it, it wasn't sort of, I don't know, strong enough in drawing or strong enough in the basics. But I, I think it just allowed a lot of people to flourish uh, in ways that were unexpected. It was She was really good. Yeah, terrific teacher. Now, did Regina... Was she glowing, talking about her, her son's new band? How did it come up that you, you, you were commissioned to do the artwork or did she, did she throw out that to your, to your colleagues and no, were you the only she, one interested? She approached me about that. Um, I wasn't the only one. There was a couple of another fellow, Justin Garnsworthy, you probably may or may not be interviewing him, who's done uh, some, some of the Fives covers too. He was a, he was a contemporary. I'll just speak to him, yeah. Yeah, he was a contemporary. In a, in a different year, I didn't know really know him well in uni, but have got to know him since. Um, but she just reached out and said, Are you, "Would you be interested?" And I think they were just in their very, very early days, because um, I think I might have done the first EP with the seahorse cover. Um, yes, this mood has passed. That's, yep, that's right. And that was they hadn't really got their sound as we all know it today. But it was just you could you know it was all taking shape certainly on that EP um, and that was that was a fun fun experiment um, uh, that worked out I think really well um, and they certainly have gone from, you know from strength to strength since then. Did you go decide to go see any Foves gigs before you started work on that art piece or did you even talk to the band about what vaguely they were after? Oh well certainly um, that's not a good question ago. yeah well, that's right. <laughs> I'm really racking my memory I certainly did see gigs uh, during the course, yes, and I, I met the guys at a recording studio. I think it was, I'm, I want to say Sing Sing. Uh, Timbertop? Timbertop, that's Timber right. Top. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ringwood. That's right, that's right. I was there and met, uh, I'd already, I think I'd met Adam before through Reggie, or possibly, yeah, he, he brought me there and, and I met Coxie and Phil and, yeah, uh, and they were all terrific, lots of fun. Um, so I met them in the in the studio and had a chat, and they were all very enthusiastic. And I think I'd scribbled down some ideas, and they just said, "Go for it." Um, 
and then I think the idea on the cover with when it went linked in with the the title was to have a sort of a change, something that was present uh, that then wasn't present. Um, it's kind of embryonic too, the whole image, the seahorse, um, and then it, it passing. It's not there on one cover, one side of the cover, and it is on the other. So that was yeah, was was you know amorphously conceptual, but not, nothing really. <laughs> what did you think of? Um, are you a big fan of the Fauves, the art movement, Matisse, or anything? It just, yeah, oh yeah, by gosh, chance. Yes. Are you interested yeah, yeah, yeah. in that? Great title for a band, um, <laughs> Matisse and Gauguin. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, but particularly Gauguin, I think uh, was it. Um, and who was the other? There was more. Yeah, I, I love that idea of. Uh, I certainly did back in the day of that sort of feral painter <laughs> um, yeah. kind of uh, sense. It, it it was a good uh, place to sort of occupy your head as a young twenty something uh, fella at uni exploring art and uh, growing dreadlocks and etc. <laughs> as was as as was a lot of us were doing back in the day. I'm just going back to Timbertop. You were there just for maybe an hour or so. Was, do you recall anything? Any do, do you recall the atmosphere at the time? Were they nervous or? Oh no, they seemed to be in the in their in their zone, you know, they were very, um, they were having fun in a nutshell, I think, um, yeah. uh, from my recollection. It was all a bit new to me. I mean, I, I think I've been in a recording studio before, but maybe I hadn't. Um, On to the logo now, the sort of art splat graffiti type stencil thing. How did that come around? You just knocked it up and said, what do you think of this, guys? Yeah, I'm not sure how the, who, whose idea that was to even have one. That's testing me. They I didn't don't know. keep it for too long. Yeah. That, well, they did for it for a while because it, remember back in the day, I mean, obviously retrospectively not too long, no. But but back in the, I think it was for a good three or four years. Oh, look, I could be wrong, but they certainly we put it on posters uh, over over the course of at least a couple of years, and it appeared on, uh, I think two or three albums. Would that be right? You, you yeah. The artwork. I think it's gone around drive through. Okay, so four or five years, I guess it lasted. Not bad. It lasted longer than I thought it would. I, frankly, I was a little bit surprised that they kept kept it <laughs> for as long as I was very honoured. That was great. Um, yeah, that was you know um, mucking around with the sort of post punk um, ideals of you, you go harkens back to the Sex Pistols type of um, you know what was almost like a ransom note, wasn't it? I think the origins of that that, that Sex yeah. Pistols copy. Um, That's what I've read. Yeah, uh, and maybe perhaps changing that. But we were all, <laughs> it seems funny now, but we we're all influenced by people like, I think there was a name bandied around the graphic design circles called Neville Brody in the late 80s and early 90s that was a, meant to be some British typography doyen. Uh, looking back now, it's kind of a, awful. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Anyway, uh, but there you go. Trends change. So there were, things like that influenced it, perhaps a little bit. Um, I, I liked things that were, were very rough around the edges, and that suited the band pub kind of shtick, I suppose. Matthew did that awesome. Yeah, it was just brilliant. Once he did a whole heap of different um, paintings mm. uh, uh, to to. Uh, potentially be chosen for the the cover, and mm-hmm. that one with the seahorse. Um, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it was just like it was so good. The more you looked at it, it was 
really nice piece of art. I seem to remember there was some sort of delay in getting that pressed or, or okay. that, that done. That's, you know, I, I could be wrong, but... Um... So, Timber Top Recording Studios is no more. So I'm online now to see what we can find. By the way, don't be confused with Geelong Grammar School with its Timbertop campus, famous for its wealth and privilege, but also that our King Charles went there in the 1960s, so uh, I guess that was the joke when the owner created it. Um, Damien Cow thought the owner was Christian. I wonder if that was true. So here we are. 4 34 Palmerston Road, Ringwood. Now it's right by East Link. It's an industrial estate, not far from the Maroondah Highway. This is where the foes went on 13 August 89. It seems. I can't find that particular unit. But it would seem to be its Mastercraft upholstering. It's got a picture of a very Franco Cozzo looking chair there. Yeah, I'm not gonna look any further into that. Rest in peace, big Cozzo. Alright, let's see what else was recorded there. We've already mentioned Kate Sobrano, who recorded Bedroom Eyes. Those bedroom eyes, da 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 da. Doubt she went there again. Oh, some of her following albums recorded there, so who knows? Maybe she got a good deal. Um, the Recory. Single No Shoes for This Road. Recory, as Dave O'Neill called them, the Smackery. <laughs> uh, that was also released by Musicland here. Sorry, I'm on Discogs, by the way. Musicland. Uh, this Moon Has Passed, first pressing music land, and so too Tism, their first EP recorded here at Timbertop, also released through Music Land. Must have had some sort of deal going on. Uh, while Pumpkins at Midnight recorded their 89 LP Living here. Oh, it also says at the studio in Richmond. Wonder if that's another name for Richmond Recorders or Sing Sing or something else. The Studio, Tony Cohen, also produced some of these songs while Pumpkins at Night. Hmm. Some of the titles here Living in a Bed Sitter, Love in a Latin Climate, Capitalists in Red Underwear. <laughs> And, oh man, this one, this has to be a joke. It says Sid Halen recorded here. Now he's famous, even to me, uh, as Cookie, the mustachioed cook in a country practice. The uh, telena- the, the, Victor- the Australian telenovela said he recorded an album here. Surely that's a mistake. Assuming he was a, from New South Wales or something, why would he end up recording in the industrial, sorry, the suburbs of Melbourne? 
some of the song titles, Wandon Valley, of course, after the fictional uh, Hamlet in A Country Practice, Bloody Bonza Mate, Don't Bring Lulu, guess that's good advice, and a song called G'day G'day. So yeah, who knows if that's a, a mistake. Maybe there's another Timber Top or something similarly named uh, in New South Wales. And that's all that I can see. And the Sugar Gliders, whoever they were. Indie pop band from Melbourne, well, maybe I don't know my history. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit about Timber Top. Rest in history. The title of the EP, This Mood Has Passed, comes from a lyric in the track When Luck Ran Out, a fitting name of the disc's product, cognizant that the record could only be a snapshot of the band in time. The possessive pronoun this belies the band's self-awareness of their product. Now, how to get the unit out there? Any labels knocking on their doors? Not quite yet. It yeah. seems really strange, sort of the, the sort of band we are now. But yeah, we pounded a lot of pavement, put up and, posters for yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and just bowled into anywhere. I mean, I remember bowling up to you know Sony and, and Sony and yeah, the front desk and so the demos there. there it is, yeah, yeah, just we're... so naive. But <laughs> they were um, just going. Whoop. Yeah, yeah. The music land thing was just purely a you pay a certain yeah. amount of money and they'll distribute. Yeah, from yeah. Memory, yeah, yeah. A P and D deal was struck through Musicland, a mini-label who had developed a roster of independent Melbourne bands. Dave Williams now enters the Fove story. He was no longer at Musicland when the band signed up, though he had previously been a manager there. Williams had formed Shock Records in 1988, who would later take over the second pressing of This Mood Has Passed. Can I remember when I first met the Foves? No, I can't remember. What would be my first exposure? Was it a gig? No, it was. I think that it was someone um, uh, bringing a record into shock and saying, oh, look, you know, this band's really interesting. Um, That would have been my first exposure to the band. Yeah, but David Williams, who runs shock or ran shock or did run shock, uh, was always a bit of a different sort of a person, somebody who was... Yeah, a bit more of left field, so there's obviously something about us that appealed to him on some, mm-hmm. some level. This mood has passed, did well enough to get a second pressing through Shock Records. So this mood has passed, once again, I, what you've just said, I know it's going back many years, but Shock took over the second pressing, I believe, of that, of that yeah, EP. Yeah, and I honestly, I, I, yeah, I can recall us doing it, um, and I, but I couldn't really tell you... Who brought the record in and said, you guys should um, print this up? It could have been a manager at the time. I don't recall the guys coming in initially, um, but I do recall it copy landing on my desk and thinking, hey, this is pretty cool. We should do this record. Oh, shit. <laughs> at the time, I suppose we had a real belief that interesting music should be you know, given a chance. So we did put some records out that didn't click, 
Uh, but then again, you know, that not everything is going to click. So that this was one of the records we thought this deserves uh, a chance. The EP's launch was held at the Punters Club on 24 March 1990. This was also the night of the federal election. The Australian Labor Party retained government under Bob Hawke, but recorded their lowest primary vote in the party's history. Eight months remained on the Prime Minister's promise that no child would live in poverty by the end of the year. Coxie remembers calling home from a Brunswick Street payphone to check the results with his dad. Do you remember the first T-shirts you made? Did you make T-shirts even from the beginning? Was that like... Yeah, the seahorse one, wasn't it? Yeah. Davidson was like our all-round design guy. He even decorated the window at um, Gaslight Records. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was amazing. That was a big thrill, wasn't it? Window decoration. Yeah, to get the window, the week your thing up for the week in Gaslight was huge. That was massive. Yeah, that was a massive thrill. We, we haven't even got a picture of it. Nah, how dumb! You can take a picture of it. You said you, you saw it in Virgin Megastore in Sydney once, yeah? A copy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a bit, of a, a bit of a buzz. Over the next five episodes, we'll be reviewing each song of This Mood Has Past. From When Luck Ran Out to Beautiful in Death. Yes, that's right every song. I wonder if we can get to 10 minutes for each of them. We'll see. Oh, and I can't censor it. We've received some feedback about how the last podcast has landed. It stank, was stagnant, it was putrid, and there were dead fish floating belly up on the surface of the water. So, that's it for now. If you have liked the show... If you know a Foes fan who might be interested in it, please give them the good oil. If you'd like to contribute in any way, please reach out in writing. Contact at fovespodcast.com If you have a story about the Foves, whether you're a nobody punter fan like us, or from a band that played with them and remembers something funny, or you're a former record company exec willing to spill the beans. What we'd love best would be for you to send in an audio clip about anything Foves related. Could be about your favourite song. We're going to talk about all 300 of them and need a lot of content. Or maybe you'd like to contribute a correction. We're happy to be schooled. In the meantime, if you see the Foves advertise a show, go to it. Head to www.thefoves.com and consume, consume, consume.
G'day, Campbell here from Frankston South. Um, hopefully you get lots of anecdotes. Mine is a bit lame, but here you go. Um, discovered the Foves in 1990, just randomly when you were supporting, I think, the Earthmen at the MCG Hotel. They didn't necessarily thrill me, but you guys were amazing and blew us all away. So very soon after, maybe a week or two, we went to the launch of the This Mood Has Passed EP at the Punters Club. Um, my girlfriend at the time was running late, so a new uni friend of mine snuck the girlfriend and her friends in the back door, which was awesome. It was an amazing gig. Um, but the funny bit, of course, is that the uh, girlfriend wasn't my girlfriend much later, but the uni friend turned into the new girlfriend, and now 30 years later, we're still together. Kids have grown up and moved out, and life continues as is. Um, always love the wit and wisdom of the Foves, and looking forward to all these great podcasts to come. So um, good luck with them, and uh, cheers, big ears. You know, people like to drag the foes for just being another dumb rock band with those big Hollywood riffs and the girl-hungry lyrics. But there's a softer, more introspective side. I remember uh, the whole band were at my house in Newtown after a show. Uh, I had a stage set up in the lounge room and we were playing songs. Um, there, was, there was Teddy, there was Phil, there was Dr... Actually, is Dr Phil? Is that, that the, I don't know. There was, um, and we were all making music, except for Andy. Andy was at the very other end of the house, uh, sitting on the spare bed, his face turned towards the window, staring out uh, at the band's Tarago, parked on a dodgy back street. He was uh, hunched with the weight of the world on his fairly small shoulders, um, unable to pull himself away with the fear of the van and their gear being stolen. I think we actually did drag him up for one song where he got one of my guitars and put it on the wrong way and played and all that sort of thing. But uh, then he was back, staring by the light of the moon at their band. And I think that says a lot about the folks.